Let's pray before we get into it. Jesus, we just want you to be glorified now in the teaching. Jesus' gathering today is all about you. You are the center. You are the focus. You are the reason. You are the consummation of it all. It's all about you, Jesus. And we, as your people, we want to be more like you. We want to learn to live like you. And there's difficult times in our lives, Jesus. We're not surprised you warned us in this world you will have trouble. And because we're selfish people, we often have all sorts of conflict and we're not that great at communication. And we just ask that today you would help us, Lord. We ask that you'd give us insight for living from your word. That you would make us tremendously wise, Lord. Wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Body to get along with one another. That you would teach us to assume the best and to think the best and to take imagination and speculations captive and to have our hearts and our minds dwell on that which is true and lovely and pure and worthy of praise and excellent and of good repute. And so instruct us today, Lord, because we just confess before you we are a silly people. And yet in your amazing love, you have made us your people. And so teach us. Holy Spirit, I feel fully inadequate and unable and unworthy to teach the word of God except for by the blood of Jesus and the empowering of you. So Holy Spirit, we ask together that you'd please come upon me to the word of God. We believe it to be effective, living, active, and errant. Bless the teaching of it now for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, look, we're going to meet some old friends here in chapter 22. They keep coming up in the book of Joshua. Here we see him in verse 1 of chapter 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites in the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, by this time, we're very familiar with the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gab, Gad, excuse me, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We remember the story from Numbers 32, which we've spoken about at length chose to compromise and not enter into the land of Canaan to settle there, which was the Lord's will for them. They are the tribes that chose to settle. They settled for God's second best. God's plan for them was that they would cross the Jordan, enter into Canaan, and begin to take possession of the promised land from there. And you remember from Numbers 32 that they looked around on the east side of the Jordan and said, you know what, this is good enough for us. We have a lot of stuff, we've had a lot of income, we have a lot of wealth, a lot of accumulation of livestock and big families, and this is pretty good land, and we would just like to settle right here. Moses, we don't really want to go any further for us. Now Moses warned them and said, you guys, that is a sin of rebellion against God. God's plan for you is that you continue on, that you cross the Jordan, that you take, take the land, that you lay hold of the fullness and all the blessings. Follow after the Lord. And they said, no, Mo. This is enough for us. We ain't going no Mo. We're just going to settle right here, Moses. And, and, and the amazing thing is that Moses allowed him to do that. And you know, there's a real warning in our lives for that. God will, in fact, allow us to settle if we insist. He's given us free will. It's a mysterious thing. And it certainly is mysterious in the way that it interacts. And it does. He's given us free will. And if we will say to God persistently, this is as far as I want to go. I don't want to go any further. The Lord will definitely warn us by his word and his spirit and his people. No, you ought to go on into the promises. You ought to go on into the fullness. I've got more for you. Don't settle here. And yet if we insist, so often he will not force. 
And he allowed them to settle on the wrong side of his promises. So often God's people do that. We settle on the wrong side of God's promises. And so that's what these tribes did. We know that. We've talked about that extensively. I'll try not to belabor it here, though I seem to love to. Since the time that they settled until now has been seven years or more. And you know, it was seven years of warfare. Now, they were allowed by Moses to settle on the wrong side of the Jordan under one condition that the warriors would cross over the Jordan with the rest of their, their Israeli brothers and fight the battles of Canaan. So they would leave their families and their stuff and, some, and uh, all their possessions and some of the men behind, but the warriors would cross over and fight the battles of Canaan, and they've done so for seven years. And now they're going to be allowed to return to the other side of the Jordan River, the east side, where all their stuff is. How Joshua deals with these people who have had great failures, but have also at times followed the Lord and are heading into a new season. Verse 2. And Joshua said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice in all that I commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. Notice what Joshua says to them in verse 2. He says, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Now, that's only partially true. They didn't keep the part about entering into Canaan. They did not cross the Jordan. They kept the part, though, where Moses said, okay, if you guys want to settle over there, I'm going to let you settle for second best, but we're going to require of you that you go fight the battles with the rest of your Israeli brothers and don't leave them alone in the battles. And that's the part that Joshua is referring to here, and it's very kind of them to refer to that at this juncture in their life. Joshua not to hold their past failures over their heads. Isn't that kind of him? Isn't that kind of him? He's accentuating the things that they did right. They had this great monumental failure, and it's going to come back to bite them. But Joshua at this moment is choosing not to hold it over their heads. He chooses to let uh, the past be the past. And he just accentuates the areas in which they did follow the Lord. Because really, you know what? They knew they blew it. We always know when we blow it, right? We, people usually know when they've blown it, and they don't need somebody to belabor. Continually telling me, I know, why do you keep saying that? There's something in us that we really want to make sure people know how bad they've blown it. But we see here a very godly leader, Joshua, choosing not to do this as they're about to enter into a new season of their lives. They knew they blew it, and they will suffer the consequences, and they've been suffering the consequences. Did you ever think that as they went into battle for seven years, they left their wives behind? They left their kids behind. They left their stuff behind. And so they've been away from their families for seven years now fighting the battles. They knew every day the Israeli soldiers would wake up and have their families there. And that's a great comfort when you're, you know, in a difficult situation to have your loved ones around. But not Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. They knew every day that they had made a great mistake. It was a bad choice. 
They knew that. Joshua knew that. But what he chooses to do now is commend them for what they've done right instead of remind them of what they had done wrong. And I think that's a great example for me, really. I need, I need to learn that lesson. Their bad choices in the past, Joshua allows it to remain there, and he's choosing not to hold it over their heads. Now, the New Testament says that when we're all going to fail, even if we're born again, we still sin until the day that Jesus Christ comes for us. And we're going to sin against God, and we're going to sin against one another. And the Bible tells us that when that happens, we need to be merciful with one another, as Joshua's being here with the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It says in Luke 6, Jesus speaking, starting in verse 36, he says, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. Same word in the Greek is merciful. You must be merciful just as your father is merciful. Stop judging others and you will not be judged. Stop criticizing others or it will all come back on you. You will be forgiven. If you give, you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full measure, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, and running over. Whatever measure you use in giving, large or small, it will be used to measure what is given back to you. Now, those are the words of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And that's great advice for how we ought to deal with one another. Be compassionate and merciful as God is merciful with us. Jesus also said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And it says there, stop judging others. And that's become the mantra of uh, the unredeemed world. You know, don't judge me. And it's become the mantra of lukewarm Christians. Don't judge me. And they love that statement, often taken out of context. Because we are told in 1 Corinthians 5 that we are to judge other Christians. That is, discern from the word of God actions that are clearly right or wrong. We're to judge, but we're not to condemn. We're to discern. Listen, the word of God says this, and you're doing that. That's wrong. That's not judging them. The word of God has already judged them. The idea here is not to condemn, not to pronounce judgment upon them, but rather, as has clearly been discerned, that someone is in error to be merciful, gracious, and compassionate. We're also told in this passage to stop criticizing others or it will all come back on you. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven others. You will be forgiven as well. And, and then in the way that you give, he's going to deal with us and how he's going to cause his people to deal with us. That's a gnarly one. If you're generous with compassion with people, God will see to it that you're given generous compassion. If you're generous in just giving gifts and, and care and concern, whatever it might be, God will see to it that he and his people are generous in the same way with you. That's what the scriptures say. And so I think Joshua, intuitively knowing this as a man of God, is dealing with them rightly by letting the past be the past and accentuating what they've done wrong, commending them for their successes and not condemning them for it's not that we're to turn a blind eye to sin or to allow it. We're not to. Moses told them in Numbers 32, if you guys settle on the east side of the Jordan, you are sinning against God. He told them that. He sought to hold them accountable. But once they made their decision, mercy and grace was extended to them. And so wonderfully, Galatians 6 says to you and I, verses 1 through 3, brethren, 
If any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Notice the phraseology of the Holy Spirit. If anyone is caught in any sin among the brethren, you who are spiritual, restore him, not condemn him. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness, mercy, compassion. And then here's, here's instruction. Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Jesus said it this way, before you go to deal with the log in your brother's eye, deal with the, or the speck in your brother's eye, deal with the log that's in yours. Look to yourself, because often we're guilty of the same things. Have you ever noticed how our sin looks so much worse on anybody, everybody else? Tolerate it, and we're like, ah, not so bad. And we see it on other people, we're like, filth, disgusting, you vermin. <laughs> but for us, it's like, oh, it's no big deal, really. Look to yourself, lest you two are being tempted by the same thing. And then it says, bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Or it might be translated, if you think that you're too important to help someone in need, you're fooling yourself. You're really a nobody. In other words, the cross is, or the ground is level. We need to bear one another's burdens because we all know the burden of sin, the burden of rebellion, and the burden of failure. And we're called as the people of God to help the other people of God. To restore not to condemn, in a spirit of gentleness. And that's how Joshua dealt with the two and a half tribes here, and I think it's wonderful. But then he's not finished. After commending them for their successes, not mentioning their failures, now he's going to instruct them as to how to stay right from here forward. Verse 5, he says this, very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua's being very thorough in his leadership here. Doesn't mention the failure, commends them for the successes, but then instructs them on how they ought to respond now, having received grace and mercy. How should they live now? And there were six quick points there, and each one could be a sermon. We won't do that. But very quickly, he says, be very careful to observe. Love the Lord. Number three, walk in all his ways. Number four, keep his commandments. Number five, hold fast to him. Number six, serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. Now, this is wonderful biblical instruction as to how to stay right how to walk right with the Lord, how to maintain a healthy spiritual life. Be very careful to observe the word of God, getting it daily. Make it your practice and your discipline. Love the Lord your God. Cultivate intimacy with Jesus Christ. Give him the worship and the praise and the obedience to his name. Walk in all his ways. Don't compromise in little areas, but in all of his ways. Commandments. Hold fast to him. What does that mean? I don't know, but I want to do it. Hold fast to him. Just cling to the Lord. I think it probably means in the difficult times, make sure you, you just are clinging to the Lord because those are the tumultuous times of life. And in the prosperous times where we really have a tendency to drift, make sure you don't, but you really cling to the Lord even though you're being blessed. And then serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. That's where the disconnect comes for a lot of people because generally we're self-serving and that short circuits our spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. We need to serve with all of our soul. And so 
He doesn't mention the past failure, commends them for the successes, and then gives them biblical instruction as to how to stay right. Very similar to what Jesus did with a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. She was caught in the act of adultery. She was guilty. And, and, and the religious leaders brought her before Jesus and threw her down at his feet. And he told all the religious leaders because uh, the law was that they were to stone an adulteress. By the way, they were also to stone the man, but the man was nowhere to be found. They apparently let him go. They were to stone the adulteress, and Jesus looked at every one of them and said, you who is without sin. And then Jesus said to her as they all left, where are those who condemn you? Does nobody condemn you? And then he said, I don't condemn you. Go your way, but don't sin anymore. You see that? He extended mercy and grace, but then instruction. Don't sin anymore. You see where sin got you? Sin is destructive. The wages of sin is death. It wreaks havoc in our life. It brings destruction and brokenness and pain and broken relationships. So he extends mercy, but then he says, doesn't Romans 6 say, having received so much grace from God, what should we do? Continue on in sin that grace might abound all the more? No, may it never be. But we move away from sin and join the grace of God. And that's how Joshua dealt with them. Now, look how God deals with them in the next couple of verses. Verse 6. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, to the one and a half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other, Joshua gave a possession among the brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them, verse 8, and said to them, riches, and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with very many clothes, divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. Look how God dealt with them. God was so merciful that even though they're going back to a place of compromise, they're going with blessings. God did not choose to abandon them even though they settled for second best. God doesn't just drop us like that. God was still with them and God still chose to bless them. We aren't like that, you know what I mean? We want people to nothing. There you get what you deserve. Aren't you glad God's not like us? He is so merciful. He is nothing like us. We need to stop creating God in our own image. He is nothing like us in his grace and his mercy. He is so different from you and I. We would like to hold it over other people's heads, make sure they knew just how rotten their sin was, and make sure that they're suffering with no blessings. But God sends them back with all these blessings. They're going back with livestock and with gold and silver and all these wonderful things. Even though they did settle, they did indeed compromise, and they didn't fully obey the Lord, the Lord is still blessing them. He has not abandoned them. Here's a little quote that I ran across this week from one author. It says, God is often more patient with us than we are even with ourselves. We assume that if we fall, we aren't born again. If we stumble, then we aren't truly converted. If we have old desires, then we must not be a new creation. If you are anxious about this, please remember Philippians 1.6, which says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I am so glad that our God is more merciful toward us than other people are, and than we are even with ourselves. Sometimes we and of ourselves are so weirdly religious in our flesh 
that we have a hard time receiving the blessings of God because we know our own wickedness. You need to receive the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ. Just receive it by faith. Just rejoice in it. Just know that he's washed you white as snow. Just know that you're already seated in the heavenlies with him. Just know that he's removed every barrier and everything that will get in the way of intimacy with you and him. Just know that he's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west, buried in fact, go to Psalm 103 real quick, would you? I didn't have this plan, but it comes to mind. Go to Psalm 103. I think it was your Bible reading for today in the one-year Bible. Look at how good this is. Psalm 103, starting in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. I wish I could sing it like that one song, but I can't sing to save my life. Verse 2, bless the Lord. None of his benefits. And now the following verses are the benefit package of God. Anybody ever gotten a benefit package from an employer? And you're either like, that's a great benefit package. You're like, gee whiz, that's it? That's all I get? <laughs> this is the benefit package of God. It says, don't forget any of them. Look what it says. Who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear He knows what we are made of. He is mindful that we are but dust. Isn't that good? Look how wonderful the Lord is. Do you know him? Look how wonderful the Lord is. Are you receiving the fullness of the grace and the mercy of God? And then are you extending it to others? Because 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says that we're stewards of God's grace. A steward is one who is entrusted with resources to distribute them equitably. We are stewards of God's grace. He has entrusted us with his grace and the representation and the distribution there. And as Christians, we're not to distribute criticism or judgmentalism. We are to discern right from wrong and truth from error and call a spade a spade according to the word of God. But let the word of God be the judge, not your wicked heart. And then we extend mercy as God has extended mercy. And didn't Jesus say something like, wow, the one who receives mercy for so much and is unwilling to extend it to someone for so little, let him be cast out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Something like that. It's one of his parables. Check it out. Let's go back to Joshua 22. So Joshua dealt with them very kindly. The Lord has dealt with them very kindly in sending them back with good things. And then here's what happens next now. They're going to head back toward the Jordan River. They're eventually going to cross it. They're going to go to their settlements there on the east side of the Jordan. They're going to be reunited with their family, their kids. Their kids, I mean, some of them left a kid when they were two-year-old, and now they're nine. 
I mean, this is going to be a tremendous occasion. It's been a difficult seven years, and they're heading back toward the Jordan. But they decide before they cross the Jordan to build an altar on the west side, an altar that is a replica of the one altar that God commanded Israel to build that would be in the tabernacle there in the, in the tent of meeting. Verse 10, and when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. So before they go over to be reunited with their families, they stop and they build this big giant altar. Now, the reason that they did this, as we'll discover in the text in a moment, is that they wanted to leave a reminder behind of their unity with the rest of the Because now they're leaving these guys by whose side they fought together for seven years, with whom they wandered in the wilderness for, for a long time. And now they're going to leave them, so they want to leave a reminder so that those in Israel on the west side of the Jordan would see this big altar and go, oh yeah, we don't want to get, forget our brothers who went on the west side or on the east side. We want to remember them that we're united and have the same heritage in our God. And that's the reason why they built this altar. They didn't intend to offer sacrifices on it. That would have been a sin against God. God said that where the sacrifices were to be made. But it was to be a witness of their unity with the rest of the body of Israel, even though they were separated by geography, namely the Jordan River. And even though their separation was the consequences of their bad decision. Now, unfortunately... When Israel heard about this big altar, they immediately assumed the worst about their brothers, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh. They immediately assumed the worst about their motives. In fact, they gathered together. They got a war tribunal. They gathered together against them in war. We read about it in verse 12. And when the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. They wanted to kill them. They heard that when they were heading back, they stopped and they made this altar and they haven't heard the motives. They don't know the reasons that I just explained to you. They just instantly assume the worst about their brothers. And what do they say? Let's kill them. Wait a minute. They just fought side by side for seven years with these guys. They'd seen God do so many miraculous things. They'd seen the Jordan part together. They'd seen the walls of Jericho come down together. They'd seen all these things. And now they build this altar and without a word, they say, let's kill them. Now that would be understandable if the two and a half tribes had done some absolutely horrific thing. But it wasn't a horrific thing which they did. It was not perhaps really a wise thing to do, and we'll discuss that in a moment. But it was not a horrific thing. But their Israeli brothers immediately assumed the worst. They begin to imagine how horrible the motives of the Gadites, Reubenites, and, and half-tribe Manasseh must have been. And they speculated about why they must have done it. Now that is a very common problem to you and I. We so often assume the worst about other people. We see what they're doing. We don't know why they're doing it. They may have some incredible places of hurt. And they've got this behavior that's just stupid. I mean, it is. But we don't know what's gone on in their life. We don't know the place of hurt that they're coming from. We don't know the destruction that's come before. We don't know the years of the local. 
And, and we, we just see the way that we're living. And so often we assume the worst. And then we begin to imagine and speculate concerning their motives. And let me say this. Imagination and speculation is the realm of Satan. Our minds, according to the Bible in Philippians 4, are to dwell on what is true, what is lovely, what is honorable, what is worthy of praise, what is excellent, what is of good repute. Our minds are to dwell on those things. And when we, without knowing the whole story, because there's always two sides, when we, without knowing the whole story, assume the worst and imagine and begin to speculate, we can get in some real trouble. And the flesh is so wicked and the enemy is so sneaky. And before we even know it, without knowing a shred of evidence, before we even know it, we have declared war on that person. All out war like the Israelites did. We really need to communicate instead of speculate. The Bible tells us that, Proverbs 18 too. Fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. Proverbs 18.3. He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. The person who makes up his mind about the situation before he's heard both sides, it is folly and shame to him. Proverbs 29.11. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise person quietly holds it back. There's some restraint. Now, thankfully, before arrows began, swords were unsheathed and civil war broke out, a delegation was sent to communicate with Gad and Reuben and Manasseh. And this delegation was headed up by a man named Phineas, who was the son of the high priest, who would later on become the high priest, who we know from Numbers 25 was jealous with God's jealousy. He was a great man of God. And he'd been used greatly of God in the past and would be used in the future. And so they thankfully sent a delegation to those two and a half tribes for the purpose of communication. And I want you to see the way that they communicate. They clearly communicate a biblical perspective of the situation. We see that in verse 16. Okay, the delegation goes and now here's their words. Verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this unfaithful act which you've committed against the God of Israel? Turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day. Now they don't have the full picture yet. They're a little mistaken in some of their assumptions, but they are communicating clearly their as influenced by the word of God. That's very important. Not just their perspective, because who cares about your perspective? It's their perspective as influenced by the word of God. It's their biblical perspective. Because the Bible told them in Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 17 that they were not to make any other altars. They weren't supposed to do it. And there was to be one house of meeting the tabernacle, and one altar where the sacrifices were made for all of Israel. There weren't to be any other altars made or any other sacrifices offered by Israel in any other place. The perspective was, you sinned against the word of God. Why are you doing this? They're not judging. The word of God has already judged. 
Now again, they don't have the full picture yet, but my point is this. In the midst of conflict, they are engaging in wise communication. That is by clearly stating their biblical perspective of the situation. It's unfettered by emotion. It's uncluttered by opinion. It's, hey, here's what the Word of God says. Here's how we see light of that. And, And I also want to note that their zeal here, their beef here, their problem here was because they were perhaps the half tribe and the two sinning against God, not against Israel. That's an important one. We usually only get mad because we feel like people ripped us off. This really had nothing to do with the rest of Israel. It was because they were violating the word of God. That's why it says in Ephesians 4 that it's possible to be angry and yet not sin. It's called righteous indignation. And generally you know that you're able to be angry and not sin if you're angry because something is coming against the kingdom of God. Abomination before the Lord. Not because it's a sin against you and your ego is hurt. So it's not about them. They come and they clearly communicate their biblical perspective. Point two about clear and wise communication and conflict is this. They seek to reason with them from related scriptures. Verse 17. They say, is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? And it will come about if you rebel against the Lord today, that he will be angry with the whole tomorrow. And then verse 20. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban, and the wrath and wrath fall on all the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Now, what they're doing is they're seeking to reason with their brothers from related scriptures. They bring up this, this issue that happened in Peor, where basically uh, Israeli men got involved with Moabite women and got involved with their false gods, and they were fornicating with them, and they were invited into the worship life of the Moabites. And God sent a plague. Destruction, 24,000 Israelis died because of that sin. And so they're reasoning, not, not from human logic, but from the scriptures, they're saying, wait a minute, this is like that sin that happened in Peor. And then they go to the story about Achan. Don't you remember what happened with Achan? You see how they're keeping it biblical? Remember what happened in Achan. For us, it's Joshua 7. For them, it's a couple years ago. When Achan took the things under the ban that he wasn't supposed to take, and then he reminds him, I want you to remember that it wasn't only Achan who perished that day. And they're bringing into it a corporate mindset. They're expressing connectedness with the rest of the body of Israel. This is very wonderful. They're saying, wait a minute, brother. Your sin affects me, and my sin affects you. When Achan sinned, his whole family perished, but all of Israel lost the battle against I. We couldn't get the victory when there was sin in the camp. And with the issue of Peor, 24,000 of our brothers died. This is a corporate issue, they're saying. Your sin affects me. The ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. We are connected by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are one body. And so they approach them and they communicate with them in this very biblical manner relating to them scriptures that they feel were pertinent. Now the third point of good communication and conflict is they offer them a biblical and self-sacrificial solution. Verse 19. If, however, 
the land of your possession, the land on the east side of the Jordan, is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. They offer their brothers a biblical and self-sacrificial solution. They say, look, this would take care of everything. You're doing these things because earlier on you settled, you compromised, you erred. Why not repent at this juncture and come and take a possession on the west side of the Jordan where the Lord originally wanted you to be? That was God's plan for all of us. And so they're offering them a biblical solution. Hey guys, this is what repentance would look like. Remember, repentance is on the east side of the Jordan. God wanted you on the west side of the Jordan. Why not repent? Offers them a biblical solution. Doesn't just hammer them with where they've, you know, blown it and then walk away. But hey, here's how to get right now. But here's what's also wonderful. They were willing to be invested, invested in the repentance of their brothers. They themselves would have had to have given up some of their possession that had already fallen to them. Come and take a possession among us. We are willing to sacrifice for your well-being. Because we're one body, your well-being is ours. That's the body of Christ. And they said, we are willing to sacrifice our stuff, our territory, for your well-being. Come back into where the Lord wanted you to be. Get back in God's will, and we're willing to give up for it. It's going to cost us for you to get right, and we are willing to count that cost and invest in your obedience. Now, that was great communication on their part. They didn't have the whole story. They, they, had, you know, they didn't have the whole gig, but it was sure better than killing. It was sure better than going to war. And you see, we often just stop short. I, I see someone do something, and I just begin to assume the worst about them. And I imagine about how, oh, they woke up this morning just thinking how they could do me in. And I start to speculate about how rotten they are. And before you know it, I've declared war on them in my heart. And what I ought to do at that moment is go and clearly communicate a biblical perspective, reason with them from the scriptures, and offer a biblical, self-sacrificial solution to what's happening. That was great communication on the part of Israel, even though they didn't have all the facts. They are communicating, they're going to get the facts straight. And that's what comes next. Now, I want you to notice the defense or the explanation of the two and a half tribes. Number one, they appeal to the Lord's knowledge of the motives of their actions. Let's start reading in verse 21. Then the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the families of Israel. And they said this, the mighty one. God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and may Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion and unfaithful act against the Lord, do not thou save us this day. Verse 23, if we've built an altar to turn away from following the Lord or to offer burnt offerings or a grain offering on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. Now, a couple points about this. First of all, they could have gotten really, really defensive. You know what I mean? We're generally like that. Somebody approaches us with, with how we're blowing it, and, and we just usually get really defensive. My wife is always reminding me of this scripture. She, she's so faithful to do this. Proverbs 
A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. You have no idea God's blessing on that scripture. I have been so blessed in my life the few times where I've employed it. And when I fail to employ it, boy, do I make a mess. But I am astounded at the living, active, powerful, potent quality of that scripture in our lives. Somebody comes against me with accusations. My first inclination is, what? You want a piece of me? Look at you. Come on. Whoa. See how God doesn't bless that attitude? That was a first. But that's our first inclination, is to get real defensive and come back with a bite. You know, and um, animals do that. You get an animal in a corner, and, and they get real vicious. People aren't supposed to do that. That's for the animal world. God designed that into animals. We're God's people. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but hard. And so they didn't get real defensive. They didn't get back in their face. They didn't declare war back on them. They said, wait a minute. Okay, let's get, let's get the focus on the Lord. I, I love what they say. It's almost comical. Their answer is, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord. I love that. I mean, I don't know what it means, but it's cool. You know, they just bring the Lord into the situation. And then this is interesting. They say, he knows, the Lord knows our hearts. Now, that's absolutely true. The Lord, he alone knows the hearts of men. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So they were absolutely right. They basically said, hey, the Lord knows our hearts in this, guys. We didn't have any ill motives. The Lord knows our hearts, but, but let's make it personal for you and I now. It's true the Lord does know our heart, but usually we don't. You see, and that's where the disconnect happens, is we can be fully convinced that our motives are pure, all the while they're perverted. Why? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than and is desperately sick. Who can possibly understand it? That's why in the next verse, God says, I alone search the hearts of men. And it's a common sentiment, sentiment that you hear in Christian conflict. You know, well, the Lord knows my heart. People say that all the time. But I would be, I'd be careful with that one because he does know your heart. <laughs> so that wouldn't really be my first defense. Because I found that usually motives. Am I alone in this? So often I might think I'm doing something for the right reason. In the next moment, I'm like, oh, I want all the glory. No. No, 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 no. No, I'm, I'm doing it because I love God's people. Oh, the glory. No. No. I really want to serve the Lord. You want recognition? No. And I don't even know my own heart. And so I find myself praying this prayer all the time. Lord, purify my heart. Lord, sanctify my motives because I don't even know what they are. I just follow the Lord and what he's calling me to do. And so they appealed to the Lord. The Lord, he knows. He knows our hearts. He knows what the motives were. But that wouldn't necessarily be my first defense. And, 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 and beyond that, 
Paul really gives us the insight that it's not enough to have a behavior that upsets the rest of the body and say, well, the Lord understands me even if you don't. Paul says that really that's unacceptable in the body of Christ. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 8.21. We have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord. You see, Paul's goal is not to stumble other people. Not to upset other people's walk with the Lord. Not to give them reason for anger or for sin. He says in Acts 24, 16, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. So there must have been something slightly askew with their behavior if it made the rest of a whole nation upset. And so it's not really enough at that moment to simply say, well, God knows my heart. I don't care how you feel about it. You see, that, that doesn't honor the us as a body of Christ. That we are to be one. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. That we're to be one. I re- have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. They felt fully justified in their actions and the motives of their heart, but it caused almost a civil war. And the rest of their God-fearing brothers didn't see the wisdom in the action. Now let's just talk about the action for a minute. Maybe it wasn't the best move. We can understand that they wanted to do it for a witness so that the next generation was that they weren't forgotten. They did it as a show of unity with their Israeli brothers. Look, we have the same heritage. We have the same God. Our life is united in our God. And and so we can understand their perspective. But God did tell them in Deuteronomy 12 and in Leviticus 17, don't build any other altars in the land. In fact, if you find other altars, you need to tear them down. And it wasn't really necessary that they built this altar because God required in the Old Testament that every Israeli male would appear at the tent of meeting three times a year for the high holidays. And so they were going to have to cross the Jordan and come back to where they would gather three times a year anyway. So that would cultivate their unity, both spiritually and politically. So it wasn't really necessary that they constructed this altar. And beyond that, we do know that later on in Jewish history, other tribes would start to, because of a want of ease, build their own little worship areas in their places, and it would eventually lead them away from the worship life that God ordained. And really, it was just kind of a, a manifestation of the flesh here. It was a fleshly attempt the consequences of rebellion, which they had not repented of. It was a fleshly attempt to minimize the consequences of rebellion, which they had not yet repented of. It wasn't that what they did was absolutely horrific and horrible, but it wasn't God's best and highest. And they had a tendency for that, didn't they? They settled on the wrong side of God's promises because they didn't want to pursue God's best and highest. And now they're just fudging in a little area again. And their motive was, well, we want to display unity and we don't want the next generation to be forgotten. That's huge in their hearts. But truly, we've done this out of concern for a reason saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you. Your sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. 
So your sons may, take, may make our sons stop fearing the Lord, they said. Therefore, we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it shall be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings and with our sacrifices and with our peace offerings. Say to our sons in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. Therefore, we said, it shall come about if they say this to our generations in the time to come, then we shall say, see the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice. Rather, it is a witness between us and you. So that was their motivation. But they didn't have the best methodology. And it was a fleshly attempt to minimize consequences of their rebellion. And that just doesn't really work birthed Ishmael, the proverbial work of the flesh. And he came before God and he said, oh Lord, that Ishmael may live before you. And God said, no, it's not the promised son. It's not what I told you to wait for. It's not my best. It's not my highest. I told you to wait for Isaac. And God would not receive their compromise or the fleshly attempt to take the situation into their own hands and minimize consequences. And so in their rebuttal, they appeal to the Lord's knowledge of their motives. Their motive is revealed. Consequences, and then thirdly, they appeal to their own moral aptitude in verse 29. They said this, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering, for grain offering, or for sacrifice besides the altar of the Lord our God, which is before his tabernacle. Now, that's just dumb. Far be it from us. We wouldn't compromise like that. We wouldn't do a thing like that. I imagine Phineas going, are you kidding me? You're the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. You told Moses we don't want to cross the Jordan. Your whole life now is the fact that you've settled in compromise and your rebuttal is, we wouldn't rebel against the Lord. You see, they just didn't have a right view of themselves. Just really, in my opinion, they're in the flesh here. The whole action was in the flesh. It might have had some good motives behind it. But it was a, a fleshly manifestation. And to say, far be it from us, just doesn't work. It showed a lack of correct view of self. First Corinthians says this, Take heed if any man thinks he is strong, lest he fall. There's the equivalent. Don't say far be it from me to fall into that sort of sin. Say rather, there but by the grace of God go I. It's God's grace and loving kindness and power that sustains us. So overall, this was a pretty bad move and a poor response when confronted. It would have been better if they had just repented. Do you see how everyone repented? And the opportunity was given Listen, Gad, Reuben, Manasseh, if this gig is not working out for you, how about coming back into the will of God? Why not just repent? Why not get right? It's not too late. Everything would have been better. So many junctions if they would have just repented, but they're so much like you and I. They keep thinking, no, I'll get away from it. No, it's not going to catch up with me. No, it'll, it'll work out in the end. Don't fool yourself. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow, the New Testament says. 
It would have been better if they just repented and they were given the opportunity to do so. And they were given a self I bet they didn't repent because it just seemed like it would have been really too difficult. Oh, oh, that's so nice of Israel. Oh, you know what, guys? Thanks a lot. Appreciate that opportunity for us to come back over there and that you'll give us some of your land and everything. But you know, our kids and our wives and our livestock, they've already settled in over here. And they've been over here for seven years now. And I'm sure that, you know, some of our brothers that stay behind, they've already built some structures and, you know, they've cultivated the land and we've probably got some crops in the ground right now. And it would just really be a big uproot comfort to repent. So I think we're just going to kind of pass on it. That's a very common one. Repentance isn't easy. Or wouldn't it be called repentance? It'd be called something else. But repentance is refreshing. Peter said to Israel, repent therefore that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It would have been so nice if they would have just gotten right. It seemed too hard to do it, but I tell you what, the difficulties of continuing is worse in the long run. Always. Now, thankfully, even though there was no real repentance on the part of the two and a half tribes, the communicative efforts of Phineas averted destructive conflict. And here we finish a chapter. Verse 30. So when Phineas, the priest, and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. I'm not real sure it pleased the Lord, but it pleased them. They figured, well, this is better than going to war. Verse 31. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the son of Reuben, and to the sons of Gad, and to the sons of Manasseh, The Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben, and from the sons of Gad, and from the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the sons of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the word pleased the sons of Israel, and the sons of Israel blessed God, and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called their altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. The communication cleared up the confusion. And by avoiding imagination and speculation, warfare was averted. They have biblical communication. They express biblical concerns. They have biblical reasoning. And they gave biblical self-sacrificing solutions. And the Gadites, etc., they returned with a gentle answer. And as a result, even though, once again, we're not necessarily seeing God's best and highest here, there's still some compromise. As a result, there's a deepening of fellowship. There's a greater understanding because there was biblical communication. That's important because we're not going to be perfect a lot of compromise in our midst, but it's important that we don't imagine and speculate and declare war, but rather communicate and deepen fellowship and thereby bear one another's burdens. Amen? Amen. Lord, we thank you for this historical account before us and how it instructs us for our living today. Holy Spirit, we ask that you make application in our individual lives. Lord, we're sorry that we so often assume the worst. They were so quick to declare war and so seldom gentle and compassionate. At least me, Lord. Maybe I'm alone in this. So, Lord, I ask that you would help me 
And if anybody else be here that needs help, Lord, that you would help us to extend mercy even as you've extended to us and teach us to return a gentle answer and thereby turn away wrath. Lord, we thank you that civil war was averted in Israel on that day. And we just ask that you would cause civil war in the body of Christ to be abolished. That you would unite us in love. That Jesus Christ, you would be the witness between us that the Lord, you would be the unifying factor. We don't need to build an altar. You are the sacrifice once and for all. Jesus, let your love rule and reign in our hearts. In Jesus' name.